ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 11. It's already been a full morning. We're always thankful to be able to, uh, as they said in the old days, stir the waters of the baptismal pool. Amen? So we're always thankful to see what God is doing and moving our church conference, seeing so many coming and being a part of our church. Let me just say as well, as this morning you have seen the ministry plan presented for next year, every dollar given here by your generosity goes towards ministry. Our goal is to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ with everything we have. And your generosity as a church has just been overwhelming, especially over these last few months. So we thank you for that. And we're excited about next year, excited about this opportunity. I don't need to remind every one of you, I'm sure you already are aware and know. And by the way, did I tell you you can turn your Bible to Isaiah 11? Did I say that? That was first. I should have said that. And I didn't turn in mine, so it threw me off. I don't have to tell everybody, and I'm sure you already know what today is. That's right, it's Reformation Day. And so, uh, y'all didn't get it. I, there's another thing going on. I thought the first, the first service got it, so you guys need to pick it up a little bit. When the traditional people get it before you guys, that's, that's tough. Reformation Day. In the early 1500s, Pope Leo the X wanted to show how powerful he was, how prestigious he was. So he decided to paint a ceiling. And it wasn't just any ceiling. It was the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel at St. Peter's Basilica. And he decided to hire the best artist he knew, Michelangelo, to paint that. But what he realized is that he didn't have enough money, so he needed more money. So he sent out the call. He needs more money to be able to fund this painting of this ceiling in the Sistine Chapel. Many people heard this because this was a great opportunity. If we can raise some funds and get some money, send it into the Pope, then the Pope will owe us. Maybe it could buy us another region or area, have great power through this money. And so a man named Albert in Germany was trying to seize as much as he could. He'd already bought two bishoprics. He wanted a third. So he hired a man named John Tetzel. John Tetzel was a salesman among salesmen. He also happened to be a priest. And so Tetzel, uh, the first televangelist then, gets on there and starts going around and finding ways to raise money. And he came up with this great idea in his mind. He would sell something to church called indulgences. Indulgences were something you could get that would... Uh, remove you or remove your sins from you and in, in, in ways that you could have uh, indulgences given to you so that you may get out of hell, if you will, even. And so what he would say is you can purchase your way out of purgatory or hell now. You can buy your way straight into heaven. And that sounds like a good plan. And so many began to give money to buy these indulgences, and he saw how good this was. You can go ahead and give some money and buy your way straight into heaven. And not only he said that, he said that if you give money now, you can even buy your mom and your dad's way into heaven. You can buy your children's way into heaven. We'll give you an indulgence for anybody you like. Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from Purgatory Springs, he says. And so he began to make money. Well, the problem was he got a little too close to a monk who was also a professor named Martin Luther. And Luther found out that some of his people were going out and giving money to this guy Tetzel into what he was selling. And so Luther became quite upset at this. And as he went out and, and recognized that the poorest of his people were giving money to this, Luther began to question it. 
And on October 31st, 1517, hence today, October 31st, Luther wrote down 95 disputations he had called theses, things he wanted to debate. Let's talk about this before you continue this. He wrote them down and did what everybody did back in the days. He nailed them to the church door to let the people know, I want to talk about this. The 62nd of those disputations, theses, says this, the treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. Luther wanted to be clear that what we're after is not putting money in a pot to paint a ceiling. What we're after is the treasury of the gospel of Christ. Luther didn't make too many friends by this. This challenge questioned the power and the money that was going on even in Germany. And it went beyond that and spread. Even the Pope heard about this. The Pope told him to be quiet, but he wouldn't. He kept challenging. He kept diving in. He kept reading the Bible. He kept looking and seeing that faith is what justifies us, not works. And so Luther continued to go against the main teachings of the church at the time. And in April of 1521, we talked about this earlier this year for the 500th anniversary of it. In April of 1521, Luther was called finally to stand before the emperor himself, Charles, the Diet of Worms. Luther was called to stand to meet Charles face to face. Now this rarely happened. Luther's significance had, had risen and when he went in, the place was packed. Everybody was in there and they told Luther that he must recant of all of his teachings, recant of his positions against the church, recant of it all or he would perish and surely he would because many had done that before. And Luther, as he's called to recant, comes back and he says, here's my position. He says, I'm bound to the scriptures that I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. And standing there in front of the most powerful man in the kingdom, and the most powerful kingdom in the world at the time, the Holy Roman Empire, standing there before that king, Luther looked at him and said, I cannot go against my conscience. I cannot do otherwise I am held captive by the word of God. Here I stand. May God help me. Luther defied the most powerful king of the most powerful kingdom to his face. And why? Why would he be willing to do this knowing that that may cost him his life? Because Luther knew that there was a greater king. And Luther knew that there was a greater kingdom to come. Luther knew that whatever power this king has, it was nothing compared to the king he proclaims. And he knew he was longing for a better day. One not ruled by the kings of this world, but one ruled by the king of kings. So it is in Isaiah chapter 11. The promise of God in Isaiah chapter 11 is that there is coming a king who will rule a kingdom and it is everything you have ever longed for or desired. So let's look to Isaiah 11 this morning as we try to understand and know our king and our great kingdom. Isaiah 11, chapter one, uh, verse 1, reading through verse 12. Here the prophet says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. 
He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the, pure, the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be with the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathras, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of the coming king and the picture that we see of his kingdom. So God, help us this morning, put a longing in our hearts for that. Put a longing in our hearts for, for your king. Put a longing in our hearts for your kingdom and help us, God, to live in such a way that we recognize the only one who has ultimate authority and power is the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. God, we ask all of these things by your grace and for your glory, we pray. Amen. Really, in Isaiah chapter 6 through chapter 11, 12, kind of serve as one section. You, you, you see as it begins in chapter 6 that curtain, as we saw last week, has been pulled back to see who's really in charge, who's really on the throne. And the one who's really in charge and who's on the throne, we saw in chapter 6, announces judgment because the people of God have not recognized that. They have followed after their own pride. They followed after their own sinfulness. They've not trusted in the one who's on the throne. In fact, they have thought that their prosperity maybe has come from their earthly king, King Uzziah. They had thought that that's where it came from, so they hadn't trusted in the one who truly gives it. And so they've turned away from him. And what we see throughout this section of Isaiah is we see the announcement or pronouncement of judgment. It continues to come. I'm going to judge you because of it. Uzziah is dead. Now his grandson Ahaz is on the throne. And as Ahaz is there, threats are starting to come into the people over and over again. The Assyrians are gathering around them. Even Ephraim, the northern tribes, are gathering there to conquer. They're looking at it. And as God has done so many times before, he uses other nations to bring judgment even on his peoples as he did to the ten northern tribes. And so the struggle is coming. It's there. They're, they're, they know that it's there. So they're looking for where to go. And God says, this is judgment because of your own pride and because of your own sin. But in, the, in spite of that, even in the midst of that judgment, God says, I'll give you some grace. I'll make you some promises. I'm going to keep it. He says, do not fear in chapter 7 because I'm going to make a child that will be born of a virgin. He'll come to you and his name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. Here in chapter 
In chapter 9, he says, this child will bring light into the darkness that has set. This child will bring light, and it will be upon his shoulders that government will rest, as it says in chapter 9, verse 5. Well, excuse me, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Here he says, I'm going to send you a sign. It'll be a son who will be God with you. And this one will reign on the throne forever. Even in the midst of their turning away and the judgment clouds of darkness coming in, God is giving them hope in the midst of that. I'm bringing one to relieve your pain. I'm bringing one to relieve your suffering. I'm bringing one that'll be a light shining into the darkness around you, he says. But still yet, they do not turn back to God. In fact, the passages, Scripture tells us that the people, instead of turning to God and hoping in him, they start to talk to the mediums, if you will, and the necromancers, those who talk to the dead, and they start to try to find out some help from places other than God and other than his truth. And so darkness sets in. And at the end of chapter 10, at the close of it, that's exactly what we see. At the close of chapter 10, in verse 33, it says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. He will chop down the trees in judgment, in other words. And when he does, darkness will set. He will cut down the thickets of a forest with an axe. Darkness will set over the place, and there will be no hope. In fact, it tells us here that if you consider this picture that Judah is like a forest, God is going to come in in judgment and chop down every tree. And the only thing left will be stumps everywhere. And we know what that means. As he chops down these trees, the whole system will fall. There'll be nothing left. No limbs waving in the wind. No birds sitting on those limbs and chirping. No life, no movement, no sound will be seen. It will be like a wasteland because God will judge. Because you've not turned back to me. It'll be a wasteland of stumps instead of beautiful, glorious forest. The world, as he looks out, will be dead, in other words. Because when there's just stumps, there's no tree limbs, there's no fruit, there's no seed that can grow another tree and bear more fruit and growth, it's gone. It's over. And that's where verse, or chapter 11, verse 1 picks up. In the midst of hopelessness, in the midst of a forest that has been lopped down and there's not a tree left standing, in the midst of desolation, in the midst of no movement, no sound, no nothing, nothing's left, just a bunch of stumps. Because of judgment, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And this morning, what we see in chapter 11 then is this promise of a new kingdom that will come and a new king who will reign. This king who will come will bring hope. And so what we'll want to see now first is that our hope will come from a stump, if you will, from one stump amid all the stumps out here that the Lord has chopped down in judgment. Amid all of them, from one stump, a little shoot begins to grow. From one stump, a little bit 
of green life begins to appear. And who is this stump? This stump is the stump of Jesse. If you consider the family lines out there and all of them had chopped down the family trees, if you will, it's the stump of Jesse that a little shoot will come from. And why is that important? For Jesse was the father of David. Jesse was the father of David. And David was the one who God made a promise to. He told David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he says, I'm going to raise up an offspring after you. That offspring, will, that offspring will be a king, and his kingdom will last forever. I will raise up an offspring after you. I will establish his kingship, and his kingdom will last forever. That's the promise God made in 2 Samuel 7. And what you need to be reminded of maybe this morning is that whenever God makes a promise, he keeps his promise. No matter what the people have done, no matter of the fact that they had sinned against God, turned away from him, and judgment had came because of that, that does not mean that God's not going to keep his promise. And in the midst of this, in 2 Samuel 7, God made a promise. And now it looks like it's over. God made a promise that his Messiah is going to come. His king will reign forever, and he will come from the line of Jesse. Well, the line of Jesse's tree just got lopped down, and you may think it's over. He's chopped the tree down in judgment, but it's not over. Because what God wants to make sure, what God wants to make sure is that this kingdom will be established by his authority and his authority only. Oftentimes he does this in Scripture. Oftentimes, he brings us to a place where we recognize that there is nothing but the power of God that can make this happen. He wants to make sure that Israel doesn't give any credit like they did before to Uzziah, saying it was Uzziah who brought prosper to, uh, prospering to us. He wants to make sure that it's the kings of this world that doesn't get any credit. He wants to make sure that they know that, in fact, all the kings that have come before you have left you to a place where you are desolate and all chopped down and nothing but stumps left. It is only, it is only God who can intercede at this time. So when that shoot begins to grow, God gets all the glory for it. For this is what he has done. And the I wills of God's promise are going to be seen in this growth of this shoot from this stump. And while judgment came because of sin, life will rise because of God's grace. Judgment comes because of, God's, uh, because of our sin. Life will come because of the grace of God. And notice the humble beginnings of it. This king and this kingdom will come up out of a stump, out of death. The shoot that he refers to here as the scriptures teach us is the coming Messiah. We'll talk about that in a minute to even give further proof, but this is the one who's going to come as the king. The shoot represents the king who is coming, like Emmanuel who comes with us in chapter 7, verse 14, like the one to whom the government will rest in chapter 9 and his kingdom will be forever. This shoot is the coming Messiah who will come and reign. This shoot will turn into a branch and this branch will bear fruit and that fruit will drop seeds and those seeds will go into the ground and that there you will see life again appear and from that shoot all of the kingdom will grow. But it starts out as a little shoot. You can't help but think, because it's coming quickly, parents. You better, you better know that Christmas is a picture here, right? You can't help but think of how God sent his son into the world, and how did he appear? Did he come with the fanfare of a king? Did he come with, with all of the nations coming and bearing gifts? Yes, he did, but he did it in a lowly way, right? He was born not 
to that fanfare. He was born and laid in a manger because there was no place for him. And it was three wise men from a long way off that the Lord revealed his glory that they came and they bore the gifts. And it was shepherds in the field, not the highest of quality in society. It was shepherds in the field that received the holy invitation. They came. They paid homage. But you see, our Savior was born. The kingdom of God was started by a baby laying in a manger because there was no place for him. So it is that we see God's word. God's word over and over again testifies that the greatest of things, the most glorious of truths, start with the basic and smallest. In fact, it's the church of Jesus Christ himself. This church, Taylor's first, that God can use. We don't seem very great. We don't seem very glorious in case you thought so. But he still uses us to reach into the darkest places of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And just like those in Acts chapter 17 who came out and started proclaiming, we have a new king, not Caesar. They turned the world upside down. So it is for those of us who are simple. Not many noble, not many wise, but who believe that we have a new king and we have a new kingdom. Out of this, we see the humble beginnings of the kingdom of God. And this shoot that comes up out of this stump points to hope in life, a new kingdom with a new king. And he comes with new power. This king comes in verse 2, it says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. This king has more than just the lineage of David behind him. This king will come and be anointed with the spirit of God. That's exactly what it means to be Messiah. That's exactly what it means to be the Christ, the anointed one. This king will come with the spirit of the Lord resting upon him. This king does not have to need or does not need our mechanisms for power. This king is not going to have to make truces with other nations and compromise his own security because he needs to be secure. This king is not going to have to give away princes or princesses in marriage to build up treaties and, and find some sort of allies in other places because this king has the spirit of God resting upon him. This king does not need the mechanisms of the world. He does not need the politics that we all love so much and able to make things happen and make things done. This king does not need any of that. This king has wisdom and understanding himself, counsel and might himself, knowledge and the fear of the Lord himself. This king has everything he needs because the power of God and his spirit rests upon him. This Messiah's kingdom, this Messiah's kingdom will be the Lord's kingdom. For he says in verse 3, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. In other words, his delight is not in himself. Like the kings of this world who have pride and arrogance and think they've accomplished something on their own and think they are the most important ones. Not this one. This one, he delights in the Lord himself. So this Messiah's kingdom will be like God's kingdom. This Messiah's kingdom will be just like the Lord's kingdom. No arrogance like worldly kings. No bribes, for he judges rightly and righteously. You don't get to call him whenever you get the traffic ticket because you knew the magistrate when you were in the sixth grade. Y'all hadn't done that yet, maybe, but. <laughs> this one judges rightly. This one judges with righteousness. This one shows no partiality in doing what is right. This one takes care of those who are poor. This one takes care of those who are meek. This one makes sure that everything is done well. He gives 
equity to the meek. He gives righteousness to the poor. He even ends the wicked, it says. With the rod of his mouth, he strikes the earth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. This one brings true justice. He has the power to do it on his own. He does not have to make up an arsenal of people around him to do it. This one has the spirit of the Lord resting upon him. This one is righteous. This one is true. This one has real understanding. This one will always do what is right. This is the king we've been longing for. Isn't it true? Every time we go to the polls, every time we go somewhere, we're looking to vote for that one who can bring righteousness and truth, right, as believers? Don't we want that? Don't we want to see our society better? Don't we want to see things look right? Don't we want to see justice done? Don't we long for those things? And every time we go after it, oftentimes we are disappointed on the other side. Because the promises made to us cannot be kept. And those promises that are great, those promises that are tremendous, those promises that are always made during election season, we recognize as they one after the other cannot be kept. But not this king. This king has the spirit of the Lord resting upon him. This king can keep every promise ever made, and he has. This king can do what is right always because he is right and he is righteous. This king reigns with righteousness as his belt for his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Didn't we talk about this in Ephesians chapter 6? This is the one who wore this belt first. This one who's the one who displays it for all of its glory. This king is the one who always does what is right, always does what is true, and he will always do it forever. This is what we long for. This is what we want. Even if they loved Uzziah, what has happened after Uzziah is the next king brings something different and the next brings something different and their prosperity has now failed as the nations are at their door looking to conquer them. They know that even in their best of kings that they have, it is not forever and it will not last. But this king, this king is righteous and his kingdom will never pass and his kingdom is forever. And there's more to it. Not only does he have the power to do what is just and is true in his kingdom, he brings peace. In fact, this is one of the great descriptions of peace ever written here, starting in verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. He continues, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall, be, shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. In other words, these natural-born enemies in life, these, these natural-born enemies who, who are, are red in tooth and claw looking to kill and destroy, God in this new king, he will change that and he will make everything that is wrong right again. In fact, it says in verse 9, that they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. In other words, everything will be true. God's peace will reign and all of us will be in that peace on his holy mountain. Many have promised peace throughout history. Many have promised a utopia. Many religions of the world offer up some sort of a utopia and offer that they can give, but none of them have ever been able to deliver on it. Even the revolutionaries of this world say that we're going to come in and we're going to change things and we're going to make it right and we're going to do it. But we've all realized over and over again that every attempt they make simply falls short of what they can claim or what they can offer. And then it just 
turns more into oppression and pain and sorrow. The kings of this world cannot offer this, but here, he says, here is this king who is coming. He will bring righteousness. He will bring justice. He will do what is right always, and he will bring peace. Look at what it says. I don't even know if this is true, and I'm really, I mean, I can be skeptical about it. The nursing child shall pray over the whole of the cobra. I'm not messing with that thing. <laughs> Stick your hand in the adder's den, but under the reign of our king. Under the reign of our king, everything that is wrong will be made right. And every fear will be crushed. And every hope will be realized. Under the reign of our king, there will be no fear even amongst the animals that death may happen at that moment because life rules and reigns. Peace is brought about because life rules and reigns. They shall neither hurt nor destroy the whole earth shall be full of the knowledge of the, of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I don't know about you, but I truly do. I tell people all the time, it's, it's kind of a, a growth or a step in Christian maturity to long for the return of our Savior. Oftentimes in my life, I look back and I thought, you know, there's so many things I want to accomplish. So many things I want to do, I want to check off. Maybe if the Lord could just wait. And every time as I've accomplished those things, I've realized that's nothing compared to who he is and what he's done. In fact, were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be an offering far too small of what Christ is and who, he's, who he is and what he's done. So I long for heaven. And every day that we live I long for it a little more. But when do I long for it the most? I don't know if it's you or me, but what? I'll tell you about me. I long for it the most when I see sorrow and pain in this world. Death, destruction, heartache. I look at it and I say, Lord Jesus, come now if you will. I long for the day that those things are wiped away. Disease, struggle. I long for the day that that's no more and it's been dealt with and done. And what we know is those things, days are numbered because our Savior has already come and he's already conquered. And he tells us that he is coming back for us again. And until then, we sing songs like I sang growing up. I actually sang this as a solo in my church one time. I never have sung again. I don't know if they didn't ask me. But the old song, there'll be no sorrow there. No more burdens to bear. No more sickness. No more pain. No more parting over there. But forever I will be with the one who died for me. What a day, glorious day that will be. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what you're looking for? Isaiah 11 says, here it is. Here he is. This is the one who has come. This is the one who will bring it. This is the only one who can. This is the only one who can. Even now, I want you to know that the coming of the kingdom of God is only an inch away. All that stands between this present moment and the promised complete kingdom of God is the command of God. There's not another evolution that needs to take place amongst us. 
There's not another level we need to attain to. There's not things that we have to check off of a list. There's not qualifiers that we have to do in order for him to come back. In fact, the scripture says he has already done it all. And the only thing that stands between God returning now and us going to see him is his command. That's it. There's nothing stopping him from coming between this sentence and the next. There's nothing stopping him from coming between the end of this sermon and the closing song. There's nothing stopping him from coming between this Sunday and next Sunday. And what I want you to know is what our desire here is that when we sing and when we praise God, we want to sing, praise God, and even preach, God help us, as if this may be the last one. Because there's nothing stopping the coming king except his command. And so we put ourselves in his hands. And he's good to us. He's righteous. And we say, God, until you come, here we are. Until you come, we'll proclaim your name. Until you come, we're going to sing praise to you. Think what happened to Jesus the first time he came. He was rejected by kings. He was rejected by peasants. The world system rejected him and despised him. The world system put him to death and crucified him. And yet, God raised him from the dead. God overruled this world. He overruled the wisdom of this world. He overruled the rulings of this world. He overruled it all. And what I'm telling you this morning is Isaiah is not trying to tell us when he will turn. What he's trying to tell us is this, who will return? And that who is Jesus Christ, the one who overcomes the world, the one who's been raised from the dead. And as one commentator says, this Messiah that Isaiah is talking about, this messianic king is the only hope that you should long for and the only rule that you should look to. And how far does his rule go? What is the reach of his kingdom? It tells us in verse 10, he changed it. In that day, the root of Jesse, I love that. It's no small thing. The shoot of Jesse in the first one, now the root of Jesse. Same person, that root of Jesse. Don't want you to think that Jesse gets any credit. It's the root that came from God himself. And that root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples, for all nations inquiring of him. Is he just coming for Judah? Is he just coming for those people? Absolutely not. The kingdom of the Messiah is for all peoples everywhere. And this morning in this room, we praise God for that truth because that means it's for us as well. And the signal that we raise is for all to see. Until the day he gives the command to return back, we raise the signal of the king and we proclaim his kingdom has come the king the root of jesse will stand prominently for all to see and that is our desire here the land he rules will radiate with his glory just as the people he rules radiate with his glory and all creation from coastland to coastland will know his name and proclaim him to dwell in their glorious kingdom to dwell in this glorious kingdom, all you need to do is bow down to the king. Give honor to the true king. Give honor to the one who came, rules, and reigns. Not dependent on 
skin tone, not dependent on culture, not dependent on language, not dependent on bank account, not dependent on any other thing. Just simply honor the king. And how do we honor him? Let's begin, if you will, by looking at how heaven will honor him. As in Revelation 4 says, gathered around that throne, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and nation and people. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessings and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Here will be the kingdom recognizing their king for all eternity, crying out, Worthy are you, Lord, to receive all power and might and wisdom and glory. Worthy are you, for you're the king who reigns and rules with all righteousness and wisdom. You're the king who has established his kingdom, and it has covered this earth as the waters cover the sea. You're the king who will never have to step down from his throne, because you've earned it by your own blood. You've earned it, Father. And so for us, what do we do today? What do we do today? Our desire today is to recognize this king. To cry out and bow down just as we will in the future. Worthy are you, Lord, to receive honor and glory. Worthy are you. All of us are looking for some sort of hope. All of us are looking for some sort of peace. What I'm telling you is, we have a king who was delivered on all of those things. And we have a kingdom that he has established. And so, worship the king. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and your truth. You are kind to us, God, and giving us your word. And so I pray that what we have seen here this morning from your word is that there is no other place for us to turn there's no other place for us to go, for you have established your kingdom through your Son, your Messiah, Jesus Christ, and he is our only hope. And so, Father, may we worship the King. May we lift him up as a signal for all peoples, for all nations. May we, Father, become a beacon of light as we proclaim that there is no other one, that salvation can be found in other than the King who rules and reigns from his throne, Jesus Christ our Lord. So God, we pray that everybody in here is ready today to bow down to the one true and living King and give him all glory and honor. Father, as I stand here at the front, if someone needs to turn to you and to recognize that you are the King and they can't rule their own life, it only leads to destruction. May they do just that. Repent of their sins and bow down today and come and speak to us, Father. Let the world know who their king is. God, I pray that you would stir in our hearts, each and every one of us, to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.